This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, I'm Rebecca DeSchweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for June 12th, 2022, with Sherry Gavin. Sherry's lesson today explores the stories of Ruth, Naomi, Hannah, and maybe more uh, from the Hebrew Bible. Other board members, Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, are also helping out today. If you're new to Dialogue Gospel Study, you're officially invited to check out our previous lessons, which are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire run, more than five decades, of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. You're also invited to support the work and vision of Dialogue in the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Find out more about how you can help create a fund that secures the future of dialogue at givetodialogue.com. If you're with us live on Zoom today, you're welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. Folks turning in on Facebook Live can also post their thoughts and we'll follow along there as well. Sherry Gavin is an author who is passionate about her family, her religious beliefs, and her studies in the fields of history and gender. She earned a bachelor's degree in history at Southern Utah University, where in her final semester, she accepted an internship in Australia. She now has dual U.S. and Australian citizenships and has worked in nonpartisan positions in the past two Australian federal elections. Her writing has been published in the Journal of Mormon History, Digger, The Exponent 2 magazine, and more. She is currently engaged in a Ph.D. at the University of New England, wherein she's researching the historical, ethnographic, and sociocultural nature of food and recipes of Mormon women prior to the 19, to 1970. She and her spouse, Bruce, are the parents of two daughters. The story of the adoption of these daughters, Turning Pink, will be published by Common Consent Press later this year. Our little caveat, uh, like with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. All right. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, I am super excited about this lesson, but I'm going to start with a traditional Australian welcome to country. Um, a welcome to country is an indigenous greeting that is used um, and it's extended at the beginning of most formal gatherings. Um, in the state of Victoria, where I live, it's advised as a means to which to formally recognize the past and ongoing connection of Aboriginal people to the land. So I invite all who are um, sitting wherever you are to think of the traditional owners of the land where you are. Um, I would like to express my appreciation to the Waterung people, the traditional custodians of the land where I am today. I pay my respects to leaders and elders past, present, and emerging, for they hold the memories, the tradition, the culture, and the hopes of all Waterung people. We express our gratitude in the sharing of this land and are sorry for the personal, spiritual, and cultural costs of this sharing. I hope that we might walk forward together in harmony and a spirit of healing. All right. The Come Follow Me lesson for this week is on the book of Ruth. 
and and the book of Samuel, um, chapters one to three, comprising of Hannah's story. And um, anyway, a part of my academic background is in masculinity studies. So I tend to dissect information in terms of gendered context. Um, with this in mind, there's no argument that in the church, the Bible, and so on, they're all, all patriarchal um, or masculine, if you will. That's the term I, I tend to use is masculine and feminine. Um, and many of the interpretations of these texts that we've been using are therefore masculine. For this section of scripture, um, traditional discourse, this masculine discourse, is focused on steadfast conversion in the case of Ruth and the utmost faith in the case of Hannah. Um, I, but I argue that these are masculine perspectives, not wrong, not right, but masculine. Um, so I'm looking at this completely differently through a feminine perspective rather than masculine. Um, when the book of Ruth begins, we are quickly introduced to Elimelech and Naomi. Within the first three verses, Elimelech is identified as a husband and Ruth as a wife. No other wives or concubines are, are mentioned, implying equity. This couple and their sons are identified as living in the city of Ephrath, which is Hebrew for fruitful. But for this family, the land is in famine. The lack of fruitfulness in a city that is called fruitful introduces the challenge of fertility. The fertility of the land, the fertility of the people, and the problems associated with fertility and lack thereof. Uh, the situation for Elimelech and Naomi was dire enough that they decided to go to Moab. There is some scholarly discussion as to why they may, may have gone to Moab particularly. Um, there's uh, talk about how Elimelech was cursed for going to Mount Moab, um, and that's why his sons were later infertile and later died. Um, and, you know, because we know that they were told to not go to Moab or that Moab was a, a cursed place, believed to be a cursed place. Now, I think that male infertility is an interesting thing to consider. In most scriptural accounts, the responsibility of fertility is laid upon women. We know that Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel had experience with infertility. And we will later discuss Hannah and her infertility. But the sons of Naomi and Elimelech were married for 10 years without producing children, which might suggest that biblical men also dealt with infertility. Um, I like to always suggest or mention at this stage that between Elizabeth and Zechariah in the New Testament, maybe the infertility was not Elizabeth's, and perhaps that is one reason why their son was called John. To be sure, Moab was described in Deuteronomy 23 as a place full of wicked things. Some religious scholars presume that Elimelech chose to go to Moab because he lacked the faith that God would see him through the famine. Comparative um, LDS, LDS resources focus only on the idea that his family left for, for food. I think the food thing is correct. I'd like to lean that way a little bit more than he just gave up his faith. Um, but I think there's a layer of fertility in the question as well. If you recall, the road between Moab and Ephrath was the same road in Genesis 35, wherein Jacob's wife, Rachel, Rachel travailed and she had hard labor. That's in verse 16. I continue in verse 18. And it came to pass as Rachel's soul was in departing for she died 
that she called his name Benoni, which means son of my distress. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now, uh, her husband renamed the son Benjamin, of course. But uh, the point is, is that we know that this road has a, a reputation for infertility or fertility issues. Um, we learn of Naomi's fertility issues in Ruth 1, verse 21, which begins with four powerful words to her daughters-in-law, wherein she recalls her, her original move from Ephrath. She says, I went out full. Naomi is telling us that she went out of the city of Ephrath. When she went out of the city of Ephrath, her belly was full. Because it was a time of famine, these words can only mean that she was pregnant. These verses before this pregnancy revelation share that she lived in Moab for 10 years, in which time she had two sons mentioned by name, who were married. No other children are mentioned. This means that the baby did not live. Naomi miscarried, or she had a stillborn. We don't know how long in her pregnancy Naomi was. However, in verse 11, Naomi rhetorically asks Orpha and Ruth, are there yet any more sons in my womb? Suggesting that the stillborn or miscarried baby was a son. Perhaps this is why Elimelech chose to go to Moab, and perhaps this is even why he died. He gave whatever food he had to his pregnant wife and two sons. We don't know. But what is important here that this is that this is the only place in scripture where miscarriage is mentioned in connection with a specific person, particularly a woman. It's used in other places as a curse, but this is used in the description of a woman who is expressing her sadness. So I want to sit here for a moment. All of us know someone who has miscarried. Um, It's likely that we all know someone who's had a stillborn baby. We also know that not everyone responds to miscarriage in the same way. Um, A few years ago, I I was collecting some histories for the Claremont uh, Graduate University's Mormon Women's Oral History Collection. And um, It was a common question to ask people about their experiences with fertility. Um, So I have, if I can, screen share. Um, Host disabled participant screen sharing. (laughs) Okay, I won't screen share. Um, But I had some examples. Try try um, it now, Sherry. I just just undisabled it. No, all good. All right. So these are just some examples from that history and another history of miscarriage. It's a very strange thing to miscarry, to have feelings of loss and grief when I wasn't even sure I was pregnant at the time. I'll never forget. I was 22 weeks pregnant and it was December 21st. I had an appointment to see my doctor and I felt strange. He performed another ultrasound in his rooms. He looked at me and said, I'm so sorry. He wanted me to go into labor naturally so as to not cause complications with future pregnancies. I was in labor for nine days 
at home. I have miscarried twice. First trimester for the first one and start of the second trimester for the second one. I thought that the spirit that came in my daughter, that she was trying to come, but she didn't come until a later pregnancy. And lastly, my belly was filled with a babe when we left for Ephrath, but I was cursed and being unable to fall pregnant again became bitter. Have I turned my screen share off? Yes, you're fine. Okay, good. Sorry. <laughs> um, these are just four experiences of miscarriage. One is clearly Naomi. Um, but they represent a tiny part of the breadth of emotions which come as a natural result of pregnancy loss, regardless of induction or timing. I venture to say that everyone who experiences miscarriage has their own individual spiritual story, as does Naomi. This is one reason why Naomi's story is so important. She shares ever so briefly a loss that up to 20% of women experience. Her story also expresses the limits of her fertility. Without a husband, she can't have a baby. I think that this is imperative to note. She doesn't say that her womb is closed like others, but rather in verse 12, she says that she is too old to have a husband. Perhaps there's no male to negotiate another bridal contract. Perhaps she isn't as desirable as a younger woman. Perhaps her miscarriage traumatized her and she just was no longer interested in marriage. And perhaps she just didn't want to remarry because she loved her husband. Um, in light of this, I, I, I question her common depiction as an elderly woman. She may have just been middle-aged. She may have still been fertile, but she just wasn't in a position to remarry. Meanwhile, the land in Bethlehem was cured of, the, of its infertility, and Naomi wanted to go home, even as a widow. She makes plans to do so, instructing her daughters-in-law to return to the home of their mothers, which again implies the kind of female fertility that is symbolized even in Heavenly Mother. I think it's imperative to note here that much of what is written about Heavenly Mother is written by women and often in terms of fertility, of mothers talking to daughters or mothers, um, expectant mothers experiencing pregnancy and feeling so alone. Much of the artwork that explores Heavenly Mother also presents her in varying states of fertility. Some of my favorite Heavenly Mother uh, renderings show Heavenly Mother with a full expectant belly. Thus, to invoke the term mother in and of itself is to invoke fertility. Naomi invited her daughters-in-law to go home where there was a fertile nest waiting for them. Rabbinic literature teaches us that a convert to Judaism should be turned away three times before a rabbi should seriously consider the person's desire to convert. How many times does Ruth ask to go with Naomi? The first time is in verse 10, where we read, Surely we, Ruth and Orpha, will return with thee unto thy people. To me, thy people implies that she is not yet converted. They have not yet converted to the religion of Naomi. 
um, that's when Orpha bows out. But Ruth persists again in verse 14 and lastly in verse 16, where we get the oft quoted line. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. In traditional rabbinic thought, this is Ruth's third declaration of intent to convert. Thus, in verse 18, Naomi finally accepts. It reads, when she saw that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. In these few verses, we see that in the absence of a patriarch, Naomi acts upon Ruth's desire to be converted. She left speaking unto her, which means Naomi began to teach Ruth in terms of conversion, only at that stage. Um, so I want to talk about Orpa for a moment here, because I think we tend to throw her under the bus. A lot of people are like, oh, she returned to her heathen ways, super wicked, all this other stuff. But, and we use her in a, as an example of someone who is um, not, not righteous. Um, but I think this is an unjust judgment and a mistake. Um, it is through antiquated patriarchal ideas that we presume that women always convert to their husband's religion. Not the case. Newsflash doesn't happen. People don't always convert to their spouse's religion, even when it's a woman and the man is particularly religious. Doesn't happen. In light of these verses and in this common sense ideology, it seems to me that Orpah never converted. So why are we always holding her accountable to this higher level of conversion and treating her like a fallen being? I mean, we all know part member families. Are the non-members any less worthy or righteous than others? Do we judge them for not going to the temple if they're not members of the church? Of course we don't. So I think, um, I think we should just stop throwing Orpah under the bus is what I'm saying. So let's recognize that she loved Naomi enough to offer to go with her. She was also obedient when Naomi instructed her to return to her mother's house. The next few chapters in Ruth are very detailed, and we learn a lot about gleaning and marriage ritual. They are likely the most debated and researched because this is where men play a major part, negotiating bridal contracts and so on. Some academics even declare the book of Ruth a patriarchal history because of the details in gleaning property and marriage ritual through the conversations of women. So, but I want to focus on that conversations of women here for a moment. Um, much of the Ruth, book of Ruth um, is written as a conversation. You know, Ruth said this, Naomi instructed Ruth to do that. So Ruth said that and Boaz responded and it's a conversation. It's beautifully linguistic. It's just lovely. Um, so let's focus for a split second on the fact of immigration as well. Um, Naomi herself was an immigrant to Moab, so she knew all of the little intricacies that made Moab different. Thus, she knew perfectly the differences in language, culture, and tradition. So she was the perfect guide to teach Ruth what it was like in order to migrate to Judah. 
This is the blessing that we get from immigration. It gives us the opportunity to perfectly record cultural nuances that we no longer realize that we're doing. Now, I say this um, particularly because I'm an immigrant as well. I immigrated to Australia. And I swear that the cultural differences made immigration hard. And I have all the privilege. I'm white. I speak English. I'm educated. I can read. I had all the privilege, and it was still a challenge. So um, I suspect that Ruth was in some ways similar to me and that she knew the language, but she also had a really handy guide to help her. So um, as an example for me, when I first got to Australia from the United States, um, in the U.S., everybody tends to keep eggs in their refrigerators because that's just what people do. In Australia, that's not so common. It's becoming more and more common. But when I first got here, eggs were kept like on a regular room temperature grocery shelf and not even in the baking aisle, which to me makes sense. But they're just kept in the grocery store on a shelf, varying places, sometimes by the bread, sometimes by cooking oil. Anyway, for the longest time, I could not find eggs in grocery stores because I could not get my head around the fact that eggs were not being kept in a refrigerator. I mean, I'd ask for help at the grocery store. They'd say, go to aisle five or whatever is the middle of the store. It wasn't a refrigerated aisle. So I didn't even look because it just, I couldn't get my head around it. Um, And, you know, again, I'm privileged. I can't imagine what it's like to be a refugee and not know the language and look different and have all of those challenges on top of the fact that you can't find something as simple as eggs, but it happens. So I just, I like to really remind people to be compassionate to all migrants. Um, And what makes common sense to you does not make common sense to maybe a migrant. So smile, be helpful, be kind, follow Naomi's example and give as much instruction as is necessary in the most loving way possible. It makes a world of difference. So back to Ruth and Naomi. Um, There's a lot of academic debate about the details of the courtship between Ruth and Boaz. Comparisons have been made to Zelophiad's daughters and the legal implications of Naomi's inheritance rights. Um, What's further fascinating to me is that these debates are most are the mostly common passages of scripture that are analyzed within Ruth um, by biblical scholars, because that's the most fascinating part, right? Let's forget about the women. Let's forget about infertility, infertility. Let's forget about migration. Let's focus on the facts, ma'am. Um, um, because of that, uh, I, I well, I find these I find the legal debates fascinating as well. There's a lot of argument. Um, about patriarchy and so on. But at the end of the day, the argument is fixed around Naomi's inheritance. Naomi is identified as the one who is working in Ruth 4, um, chapter 4, verse 3, to selleth a parcel of land, which was Elimelech's. Then in chapter 4, verse 5, 
It reads, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must also buy it of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. This first implies that when you buy the land off of of Naomi, you also buy or acquire, if you will, the responsibility to provide for Ruth. In other words, if you want the fertile land of Elimelech, as sold by Naomi, you also have an obligation to Ruth. In these next few verses, Boaz declares his desire to marry Ruth. And in verse 9, he separately declares to protect and provide for Naomi. There's an indication here that perhaps Naomi was the one who was traditionally presenting herself as a potential mate um, to the unnamed kinsman, or she should have. But instead, Boaz loved Ruth and wanted to marry Ruth. And one of the reasons he loved her was because of how much she was willing to sacrifice for Naomi, and had already sacrificed for Naomi. Um, In light of this, I think it's additionally important to read the final verses in the book of Ruth through the lens of fertility and femininity. I will do so here. Um, Again, in a bit of a screen share. I'm just going to read the highlighted parts. Oh, it'll let me. Uh, It's not working for me. Uh, Stop share. It wasn't working. Sorry. Um, So I'll just read uh, chapter four, verses 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. The Lord gave her conception and she bare a son. And the woman said unto Naomi, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life. And Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse unto it. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi. They did not say that there was a son born to Ruth, but to Naomi. Comparatively, when a son is born to Isaac, the Bible doesn't say Abraham had a son. It says Isaac had a son. This is an important distinction. Ruth was protected in her new marriage, but Naomi was still vulnerable as a widow. This passage implies that both Ruth and Boaz were willing to have Naomi act as a surrogate or as a birth mother for the benefit of Naomi. And because this baby was a son, Naomi was therefore provided for. Now, I'm lucky enough to be a mother by adoption. And I tell you right now, I never speak ill of my children's biological mother. And I only speak well of her because I'm so grateful to her. Similarly, in honoring the great sacrifice of Ruth, not just as a religious conversion, but in curing Naomi's childlessness, 
Ruth is listed in the child's patriarchal lineage so that her name goes down as a sacred birth mother. In it, it reads, well, in part, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David the king, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, was an adoptive father to Jesus. Perhaps Joseph was told Ruth's story when he was a child, and in doing so, he was familiarized with the beauty of non-traditional families. After all, Joseph was such a righteous man that God chose him to be the earthly father of Jesus. I love this idea. Um, and I think, uh, you know, my husband and I, we looked into everything in order to, to have a family. And when we were looking into, um, we even looked into surrogacy contracts. When we looked into surrogacy contracts, uh, I found a support group for Catholic women. And this support group fully focused on the fact that they believed that the Virgin Mary was an earthly surrogate for God. I like this idea. Because to me, it sort of brings in Heavenly Mother as well. Because when I consider how picky Heavenly Mother must have been in choosing a surrogate to give birth to her son, I'm even more impressed with Mary. And every mother, regardless of her situation, that's a huge blessing. Um, And when I consider Joseph's openness to love a son and raise him in absolute righteousness with protection and all the love of a biological father, my own admiration of him soars. In summary of Ruth, I believe that this section of scripture teaches us about mortal fertility, infertility, and eternal love within the bounds of non-traditional families. I think it teaches us the importance of giving women complete and perfect reproductive autonomy. I think we also learn that adoption is good and of God. Adoption by family, adoption by religion, adoption by culture, and adoption by nationality, all are good and of God. I also think that unmarried mothers, as exemplified by Naomi, are worthy beings to raise a family as well. I believe that Ruth teaches us that love, righteousness, and the spirit abound within non-traditional families as much as it does within traditional families. So I am ending our section on Ruth and Naomi, and we have a little video before we move on to Hannah. All right. I love that video. I absolutely love it. I've seen it a hundred times and I could watch it a hundred more. I love it. Anyway. um, So the byline in in the Come Follow Me manual is taken from Hannah, wherein she proclaims in the first verse of Samuel chapter 2, that my heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Hannah is rejoicing because her prayer to have a son was answered. In other words, her infertility was cured. That's a big infertility message. Um, But not one that I'm in love with. The message is that if we pray hard enough, infertility will be cured which is not a really healthy way to look at mortal infertility. Um, It implies that when infertility is not cured, that there is some spiritual reason why. We suddenly forget the fall of Adam. We forget that we're mortal and and we run into the danger of suggesting that infertile women are just not praying hard enough or they're not righteous enough. 
it's a real danger. And um, this is manifested in numerous ways that often people don't recognize that they are doing. I talk about some of my personal experiences in my upcoming um, by common consent book, Turning Pink. But to su- suffice to say, as a married woman without children, I was left out of Relief Society. I was told that I didn't need visiting teachers, and I sat alone in Relief Society for, for yonks. And it was, it was just ironic because at the time I was doing um, tutorings for special needs children, and I was having all of these non-LDS mothers asking me for advice and how to support their children and listening to me and coming to me in tears. And, and, it, but anyone at church was just like, no, don't ask Sherry. She has no clue. She doesn't have children. You know, the whole nature versus nurture thing. It's huge debate. And, um, and it was hurtful. So I, I ended up stopping um, going to relief society for a while. Cause I, I needed a break. Um, and, and to add, I was not invited to baby showers. So I'm just saying, invite childless women to baby showers. They can say no if it's too much. But if you don't invite them, you've taken away their agency. That's not cool. They're, they're already struggling, you know, if they're trying to have a family at least. Anyway, so, um, so let's ditch the idea that prayer cures infertility because it doesn't. <laughs> um, and honestly... I got to tell you, I'm not even sure that infertility is the whole point of Hannah's story. (laughs) Um, So let's get into that. The story starts out at the temple. Now, one of the requirements that we have in order to obtain a temple recommend is to pay tithing. Comparative to Hannah's time period and through the perspective of fertility, Men's righteous acumen is showing and working the land and paying money for tithes. And for women, it was having offspring to present their portion of tithes, as we read in Samuel chapter 1, verse 4. And when, and when the time was that Elkanah, Elkanah sorry, offered, he get, gave Penina, his wife, to all her sons and her daughters' portions. So I love that they included the daughters here that they were included to pay their portion of tithes. Um, And Elkanah also provided a tithe for Hannah. And it was described as a worthy portion. In other words, a tithe that reflected that she was a woman with many children. This is because of Elkanah's wealth, not because Naomi's fertile wealth. I think that Hannah was a worthy woman, but I think she also wanted to feel like she was giving a real tithe, not unlike a woman who wants to contribute financially to her household, not unlike a woman who seeks to pay tithing, but may not be employed for a period or a man who seeks to pay tithing, but is unemployed for a time period. Um, um, in other words, Hannah wanted a tithe that reflected that she was a woman of with many children and worthy to pay that tithe. Um, Hannah wanted to offer her heart and her body in tithes to the Lord because she loved the Lord so much. She was already dedicated. And bless Elkanah's heart, he wanted to understand why Hannah wasn't happy. You know, he does the whole, am I not better to be than 10 sons? And I got to tell you, whenever I read that, 
I just, I mean, bless his heart, but he just sounds a little bit like the high school football team uh, captain. And he's like, hey, baby, do you want to go to the prom with me? Because I'm better than 10 guys. And, you know, (laughs) and Hannah's just like, no, that's, you're just not getting it. I think you're great, but you're not getting it. And I think he didn't get it either. He saw it as tithes, but um, but Hannah wanted to give a true offering to God not just money. Um, She wanted to give the widow's might. Um, And she wasn't a widow and she was well off. Um, So before I get too far into that, I want to look a little bit at Panina and her behavior for a moment. So remember, this is all taking place in the temple. Panina is mocking Hannah when they're in the temple. Now, a few years ago, I was living in a really teeny tiny um, outback town, um, and the nearest nearest church branch uh, to where I was uh, was a good three-hour drive away, so we didn't go every Sunday. Um, When we went, we went usually on the Saturday, and we did a big non-essential shop. We went to church. We spent the night, went to church on Sunday, and then we did fresh fruit and veg and drove back, Um, and that was, you know, there wasn't a lot of, it was a branch. It was a tiny branch. Um, but we went when we could. So, but during the week, you know, I sought to kind of have some kind of a relief society or connection to women. So there was a women's Bible group that started up and it was non-denominational. So I just thought, you know what, I'm going to go. Um, there's less than 10 women who went. Um, there's only maybe 2000 people in this town. I think it was only 1800, but um, at any rate, so there's only maybe 10 women who would attend. And in that small group of women who all were Christian in some form or another, the nationalities were all different. There was clearly Australian. There was also New Zealander, South African, Canadian, and even more. So it was a beautiful international Christian group of women. So the routine in this little in this women's Bible study um, was that we you would talk about a certain section of scripture. It didn't matter what version of the Bible you used, but we were just going to talk about the section of scripture and what stood out for us. So one of the studying passages that we looked at, um, we were invited to share experiences of trials. And I'll never forget it, but this gorgeous woman from Sierra Leone shared that the most difficult time in her life was when she became pregnant before marriage. Um, and it wasn't that she was pregnant and alone. Her trial was that when she went to her church congregation, her Christian church congregation, she was so sorely judged that that's what broke her. She already knew that she broke the law of chastity. She knew she had made an error. She was doing all she could to make it right, and her Christian church was rejecting her, and that is the thing that stuck with her as being the most massive trial in her life was that judgment and rejection. Um, She wept as she described how much the women in her church taunted her, belittled her, and hurt her. Thus, when I read about Panina bragging to Hannah about how greater her tithe was, how super righteous she was compared to Hannah, Um, I I think of my friend from Sierra Leone 
who was also taunted and hurt by someone in, in the church setting. Um, so we all know that it's not our place to judge. And it's so hard to not judge, you know. But I think especially when they're single mothers, you see the sin. You see it. You don't see the sin on a single father. You know, you don't see that sin, but you see it on a single mother. And that the judgment can be very painful. Um, the judgment that Hannah was experiencing was so much that she she looked drunken. She was praying so intently to be able to give her soul to God. Um, so the next verse that I want to explore in this is Samuel 111. In this verse, Hannah refers to herself as a handmaid three times. In this, she has converted her entire self to God. Three times she has converted herself by declaring she is God's slave. She'll do whatever God wants her to. She has very little to offer. She doesn't own land. She doesn't have a source of income but through her husband. And all she can offer is her fertility. So that's what she does offer. So maybe her prayer is less about her becoming a mother and more about her dedication to God. She wants to show God how much she loves him by bearing a son and giving the son to God. There's a huge parallel with Mary here. Um, so, and I just, I just want to reiterate that I don't think that this prayer was about her being a mother. I don't think it was about curing her infertility. I think it was about her dedication to God because women still die in childbirth and women did then as well. Um, so, uh, and consider that a, a friend of mine shared that a few years ago, he and his wife, um, they were having fertility problems and they eventually became parents by adoption but um his wife had fall, finally fallen pregnant at one stage um but several months into the pregnancy there were some very serious complications um and she began to she, be, she began to bleed to death so she was taken in the operating room they were looking after her they were doing everything they could but um the doctor basically it came to a point where it's it's the life of the baby or the life of the mother. Mother was unconscious because she was in surgery. So he went out and asked the father what the, who, who the father would choose. And, um, you know, it had to be a quick decision. So this man, as he was expressing this to me, uh, it sounded very much to me um, like one of the miscarriages where one of the miscarriage stories where she said she'd never felt more alone in her life. And he just said, I've never felt more alone in my life to not be able to speak to my wife and have this decision that needed to be made so quickly and prayerfully. Um, but he just felt very much alone. So he chose his wife's life. Was it the right choice? Was it the wrong choice? I don't know. I wasn't there. But when his wife came out of surgery, she was furious, absolutely furious. She would rather have died giving birth to this baby, and wouldn't most mothers give our lives for our children? But she would rather have died giving life to this child than to live. And my friend expressed that it took years for his marriage to be okay afterwards because she was so upset with him 
for choosing her over their unborn baby. So I think a lot of women, myself included, consider sacrificing our own bodies in order and health in order to have a child. Um, now, and I decided when, when things were getting hard for me with all the reproductive chemicals pulsing through my system, I, I felt impressed to make the decision. Do I want to give birth or do I want to be a mother? And I decided I wanted to be a mother. Um, but that was my decision. And I had the autonomy to do that. And my husband except was happy with what I chose. Um, so I think with Hannah, I think Hannah wanted to serve God to the best way she knew how, which was to give her son to God, perhaps at the cost of her own life. I don't think she considered if she even lived or died or if she had any additional children. She wanted to pay a proper, proper tithe, what she thought was a proper tithe to God for her love and dedication. In fact, we read in chapter two that she is indeed God's handmaid. She gives her son to Eli to raise. And it's not till after she gives her son to Eli that we read in chapter two, verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. I believe these children are in addition to Samuel. Um, I don't think that they, that she in Eva ever even considered Samuel as her own, but rather as she was the vehicle in giving a prophet to the, from the Lord to the land. She loved the Lord that much. I think Hannah has set an example for Mary. I, I don't like the idea of Mary being surprised, like the ghost just showed, the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, you're pregnant. I, I don't like that idea. I like the, the idea that perhaps Mary was very prayerful beforehand and was prepared to, to give a sacrifice. So certainly when the angel came to her, she would have been startled because wouldn't we all? Um, and he said, listen, don't be afraid. You're on the right track. But what's going to happen is this. Um, so I think of Hannah as an example for Mary and that in knowing of Hannah, that perhaps Mary was prepared to be the mother of God. Um, and along the lines of the surprise that Mary felt, I'm just saying with parenthood, all parenthood, no matter how hard you prepare, there are always still surprises in the end. I see in these biblical chapters that fertility is a gift that both men and women offer to God and share with each other, either through the land and through work or production or through birth. Um, I think that we also see of what it takes to make a family and all of these different formulas are beautiful and good. Um, now, I don't think that teaching this lesson in a traditional masculine focus is bad, but I think in using a feminine viewpoint for this in all scripture, we learn so much more of, of God and our relationship with him and our position to God in our lives. In these biblical sections, we see that women and men share the sacred gift of fertility as a means of showing dedication to each other and to God. And we, when we give women complete autonomy over their own fertility, righteousness prevails in creative, 
spiritual, biblical, and miraculous ways. So I invite you to um, invoke and invite a spiritual and feminine perspective when reading scripture, because I think it adds to the story on every level. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for that beautiful lesson, Sherry. Um, we'll go ahead and officially uh, end, and then we'll continue the conversation. Um, so Ramona will offer the prayer uh, in two weeks. Uh, join us again on June 26th uh, for our next Dialogue Gospel Study with Jennifer Finlayson Five. Be our fortress, be our guide, be our beacon in the midst of life's storms. Be our strength, deliver us from ills and pain. Remember us, your servants, return us to thy safety, to thy loving arms. Fill us with peace, offer us thy protection, fill us with thine grace. Fix what is broken, heal, soothe, and magnify us in the midst of hardships. Allow our, feet, allow our feet to be planted strong. These things we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network. 